0: Rainmaker FM
1: and we are back on the writer files once again i'm your host kelton reed here to take you on another tour of the habits habitats and brains of renowned writers and in part two of this special edition of the show we've traditionally called writer porn i invited back award-winning international journalist author and serial pundit adam skolnick to discuss a piece I wrote for copyblogger.com last year titled 21 productivity hacks from 21 prolific writers and over the last four years I've been given the fantastic opportunity to interview a wide range of more than 70 prolific renowned and best-selling authors for the writer files series And as you may know each interview digs into their process Uh, I ask them all roughly the same set of questions on how they get words consistently onto the page So I've sifted through the extensive archives, including the written interviews, and cherry-picked 21 highlights on productivity for you. You'll definitely notice some themes from their advice on keeping the ink flowing and the cursor moving, and audio snippets have been excerpted here from their available podcast interviews. Guest host Adam Skolnick's narrative nonfiction book, One Breath, Free Diving, Death, and the Quest to Shatter Human Limits, based on his award-winning New York Times sports reporting, is now available in paperback. And in addition to his recent journalism, Adam has visited 45 countries and contributed to over 30 Lonely Planet guidebooks. He's written for ESPN.com, Men's Health, Outside, BBC, Playboy, The New York Times, and has appeared on NPR. In part two of this file, some highlights include Emma Donahue, Oscar nominee and international bestselling author of Room on outlining and pre-planning, Maria Konakova, New York Times bestselling author, New Yorker columnist, and recent poker champion on standing desks and staying offline. Mark Dawson, international bestselling author and entrepreneur on finding time to publish a million words in a year. Kevin Kelly, New York Times bestselling author and co founder of Wired Magazine on first drafts and formulating ideas. And more great tips from Adam and I as we round out all 21 productivity hacks. And if you missed the first half of this show, you can find it in the archives on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in and in the show notes. The Writer Files is brought to you by the all new StudioPress Sites, a turnkey solution that combines the ease of an all-in-one website builder with the flexible power of WordPress. It's perfect for authors, bloggers, podcasters, and affiliate marketers as well as those selling physical products, digital downloads, and membership programs. If you're ready to take your WordPress site to the next level, see for yourself why over 200,000 website owners trust StudioPress. Go to rainmaker.fm studiopress now. That's rainmaker.fm studiopress. And if you're a fan of the writer files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published. All right. Moving right on down the list, Adam. We have right to now have completed all the way to now. We've got, <laughs> all the way to right now have uh, gotten through t- only ten of these. So, uh
2: well, everything's a prelude to right now. Everything, it's
1: all prelude. I like that, that'd be a great title.
2: Yeah, it's all a prelude and then a pastude. <laughs> There's only now is now is so fleeting. It's subjective. Sorry.
1: <laughs> we just went into an existential uh, prelude.
2: Yeah, sorry, I've been binging mostly. *Handmaid's Tale*. It's all—what does it all mean? You don't have to apologize.
1: I've been binging *Black Mirror*. So, mm. yeah. So mm. there we are. All right, moving on to number eleven in the list of twenty-one productivity hacks of productive writers: Emma Donahue, Oscar-nominated screenwriter, uh international best-selling author of Room and a handful of other fantastic titles. Emma Donahue on outlining and pre-planning. Here's what she's got.
3: Well, I might say perverse, but I would really emphasize planning. Uh, planning's not just sensible, it actually is you know, it's it's the rope that guides you to the wilderness. Um, so many young writers in particular, they get about a third of the way into a novel and then they get stuck and they abandon it. So I've quite often met young writers who say like, oh yeah, I've got three or four novels that I started. So I think, I think planning, which you really don't have to do for a poem or a short story, I think for something longer like a screenplay or a novel, I think planning is actually hugely helpful. And it lets you make a lot of your mistakes just at the planning level so they don't take up months of your life.
1: Let's talk about... Outlining it and, and and plotting.
2: Uh, what do you how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, obviously she's one hundred percent right. Um, and outlining is the key to everything. Uh, not even just long form, but I think even shorter form pieces yeah. uh, they're the key. You can get away with not outlining I think a lot easier in a shorter form piece, but in a long form, like what she's talking about, it's absolutely you cannot do it any other way because you will. There's a couple of reasons. One is you it, staring at an infinite blank space is so intimidating, and it's also – you can go in so many different directions, you can end up writing against yourself, and so what you need to do is you need to take that blank page and reduce it to uh, tiny blank bricks, which you can fill up much easier. It's easier to know what you want to say and therefore say it. If you don't know what you want to say, that's harder to say it. I mean, it sounds simple. <laughs> I sound like an idiot saying that, but it's absolutely – true when you're writing and you don't know what to say, it's probably because you don't know. If you you don't know what to write, it's probably because you don't know what, what you want to say in that moment, in that space, in your book or in your screenplay or in your article. And so reducing it into little clumps that you can you can tackle it's just so nice for the mind and it's just easier to do it so that's that's one reason and the other reason is there's always opportunity for self-doubt when you're on a creative endeavor or doing anything even starting a business even doing anything for yourself that's new there's going to be a million invitations to doubt yourself it's just going to happen it's just natural like when you're when you're striving for something self-doubt is kind of that counterweight that makes you skeptical enough to examine, Hey, am I doing it all right? Do I have it planned out all right? Am I going to get to that, to that success that you've been envisioning? And so you can counteract self-doubt with planning. And, uh, so I think those are the main reasons. And oddly enough, that kind of, uh, dovetails
1: into our next one, number 12, Adam Skolnick. And what you, what you just said is almost exactly what your, what your writer productivity hack was. So, uh, Oh, kudos. Oh, okay. <laughs> you almost said <laughs> was it word for it. word.
2: Actually, I, I should have just scrolled down and read mine. <laughs> that guy's a genius. He's an good. Good. genius.
1: I like it. I like it. No, but it's true. I think with the outlining, uh, absolutely crucial, I think to, to almost every type of writing, unless you're just free writing or, um, you know, um, writing something like poetry or something. But even then, I find it interesting that the difference between like doing a book proposal for a nonfiction book, for instance, you almost have to out like just outline the whole thing right before you even write a word.
2: So, yeah. So a book proposal uh, for for like you're saying, a narrative nonfiction or any sort of ti- self, any sort of nonfiction title, memoir, self-help, whatever narrative nonfiction, you're basically putting together an annotated outline. And so that is a level of outline that's kind of one more beyond what you actually have to do if you're writing it yourself. So that's, that's has chapter summaries, which include maybe a lead into the chapter plus how the chapter would break down. Um, so it's, it's both more and less than than what you would need when you're actually writing the book. When it comes to writing the book, you really have to break it down even further, um, and start like intro, you know, what do you want to say in the second? In the second section, what do you want to say in the third section? And then within that, how do I say what I want to say in the second section, A, B, C, D? I mean, it's really just outlining 101. Um, so yeah. a Book Proposal doesn't really have that level of outline in it. It's more of a, a kind of a flyover, which gives you each chapter. But then subsequently, you have to break those chapters down. Uh, I think that's what she's saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even doing your, your, your copy blogger article that we're, that we're riffing on right now. I mean, you, you outlined this, didn't you? Of course I did. Yeah.
1: So, <laughs> okay. Uh, moving on to number thirteen, one of my favorite journalists, um, Maria Konnikova, uh, not to be confused with Maria Popova. Uh, they often joke on Twitter back and forth to one another that they've been misattributed to certain writing which is kind of funny so they are buddies they both live in new york city um and they're both uh, fantastic writers but uh yeah maria konnikova um she's a best-selling author and new Yorker columnist I, I i love most of what she does and um she recently went on a poker tour and won a seat at some championship table and she was um writing a book about poker players and, and how to apply um I think the tricks of being a world championship poker player to real life situations. And lo and behold, she ended up, um, doing so well herself that she, you know, won some large sum of money at some big poker tournament.
2: That's amazing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, she went so (laughs) undercover that she basically became a pro poker uh, player. I'll I'll try to find that article for you. It was, Is
2: is the book coming out?
1: Yeah, the book's not even out yet. I mean, what a great, uh,
2: that's gonna be awesome yeah wow, that, that that's like movie style that could be a movie
1: i mean probably if it's not already been um optioned i don't i think we, sure. we better okay. option it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want me to option it?
2: <laughs> you think Do i you, can afford that you got yeah, the, you, get
1: the um, you got the cash um
2: you got all that freelance journo cash burning a hole in your pocket <laughs> all right so
1: maria Kanakova um talked about her standing desk and staying offline?
3: I use a standing desk, um, in terms of process. And I find that, um, I've been doing that for a number of years now. Um, and I really love it. Um, it really, it works for me. I know it doesn't work for everyone, Do yeah. um, no, I think it should. Um, I'm not a standing desk evangelist, but, <laughs> um, but I think it, it works quite nicely for me. And what else can I tell you? Um, I have a wonderful program installed on my Mac called Freedom. Which blocks the internet for me, for as long as I tell it to, um, and the only way to circumvent it is to restart the computer, which is one more step that I'm usually willing to take. So um, that really helps when I need to get work done um, and need to make sure that I avoid um, that I avoid, you know, all, the everything that you, one has to avoid these days: Twitter, <laughs> Facebook. Yeah. Um, Anything there's just so much distraction always just waiting to happen,
1: she's talking about the cult of business and and one way to beat it. I know a lot of writers have talked about that freedom app. Um, mm. What do you think about the the um the standing desk?
2: Yeah, no, I mean uh, I don't have one, but uh, I'm always intrigued by them,
1: yeah, I was just gonna say I think there's something to be said for. Uh, staying active, even if you're, if you are, if you do have to be sedentary, um, you know, one of the other suggestions is like one of those, um, yoga type balls, you know, those inflatable, um, balls that you can sit on. It kind of keeps you moving. And I guess, I guess, you know, something to do with just being sedentary and the chemicals that your, that your body, um, releases are bad for your heart. So I guess her way and a lot of writers way to combat that would be, To get into a standing position, so you're forced to be more active, you know, because you kind of have to move from side to side. You know, everyone's been standing at one point or another in a long line, and you you have to stay active, otherwise your your feet fall asleep or something of that effect.
2: Yeah, I'm levitating right now, so (laughs) (laughs) that works for me.
1: Not a (laughs) lot of people know that Adam is uh, also a genie. (laughs) I'm
2: a genie. (laughs) I'm I'm a genie. I'm (laughs) I'm from the school of Najee. (laughs) <laughs> Not sure school of um, no. So uh, listen, I, it seems like I, I have friends that have standing decks. They love them. We thought yeah. about getting standing desks here. We didn't have the space for it, but I think they're, I think they're fantastic. I've never used freedom. Um, although I think that the fact that she does use it when she's getting some writing done, shows you that you can, as a journalist work offline really effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as you have your, your research offline. So, um, you know, you don't need the internet, obviously, to do 99% of what you do as a writer. You need it for research, but sure. once you have that, you don't need it. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's, she seems like exactly the type of person to emulate, <laughs> considering she's uh, like can go in and become a professional poker player yeah. <laughs> within a year. That's yeah. amazing.
1: That's it is amazing. amazing. Yeah, I will definitely find that article. Congrats, Maria. All right, moving on. Uh, number 14, my colleague, um, chief content officer. For uh, Rainmaker Digital and the Copy Blogger uh, blog, so Sonia talked about reading outside your echo chamber. I like this one.
3: There are no days when I'm not reading at least two hours a day, uh, and it can go up from there depending on what I'm working on. So two to four, I would I would think it's a lot of time. Uh, and I, but it's important to me. I, you know, I research for the projects that I'm working on. And professionally, but it's also very important to me to have reading time in things that have nothing to do or seemingly nothing to do with the business. It's just very important to me to keep putting things in my brain coming from other places, whether it's a Terry Pratchett novel or, you know, an interesting piece of neuroscience or, you know, something that comes from outside my, my echo chamber is really important to me.
1: What do you think about yeah. echo chambers and filter bubbles?
2: Well, okay. Uh, one thing I'd start by saying is, yeah, I agree. You can never read enough. I always feel like I need to read more. And I've been reading quite a bit lately. And it's, it's the best way to become a better and more insightful writer. You know, I'm reading uh, Moonglow by Michael Chabon right now. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that dude is so smart. It just, it's mind-blowing. And he, you can't get that smart in any other way than he must read and absorb information at a remarkable clip. Because he knows so much there's so many intricacies that he knows about so many disciplines and just such an artist. I mean, he is amazing. And, uh, you know, as far as the echo chamber goes to me, that's like code for read other people's points of view. And I'll tell you this, what I think about that. I mean, I, I think that's good to read and make sure you're getting more multiple points of view. But I think in this day and age where journalism journalism is being attacked from the highest office in the land so frequently, um, that you can confuse opinions with facts. And just because a fact-based article, I know you're not doing that, or and I know she's not doing that, but just because a fact-based article comes to some conclusions, that doesn't mean that an opinion piece that kind of counteracts those facts is equally valid. So I think I understand what she's saying, and I don't disagree with it. However, in this day and age, I think a lot of people are confusing opinion with fact. And just because an whether it's New York Times, Wall Street Journal, whatever, has an article based on facts that comes to a conclusion doesn't mean there are other points of view. There are facts, basically, that we have to agree on. I'm, I'm really passionate about that. I think it's it's one of the things endangering us right now. And so uh, when I hear echo chamber, I'm like, yes, but no. Right. There's an objective reality
1: um, yeah. that we have to agree on. And it's, it's hard, especially in our kind of fractionated uh, social media circles and in kind of a post, <laughs> post-fact, post post-truth uh, era where truth is under attack so often. And um, yeah, I think it's important that there be an objective truth in especially journalism. And I think that's why, you know, well-researched uh, journalism that has been clearly fact-checked is so important right now. And Michael Gribko, neuroscientist, friend of mine, and I did a, a fake news episode that I'll link to
2: also. Mm. We yeah, talk about great.
1: solutions to the kind of the filter bubble,
2: but I mean it used to be that 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 opinion pieces on any side of an issue were were actually rooted in facts and somehow got un- we got unmoored at one at some point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and 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 I think the siloization of media just the, the, like you're saying, the fractionation, is that what you call it? Or, or uh,
1: <laughs> I don't know if that's the correct term. I said fractionated. <laughs>
2: but yeah, I mean, like the stylization of media, there's so much media out there and you're going to get lost in it. You're going to end up in some eddies somewhere. Uh, so really the key is, let's make sure you know if you're, what you're reading is fact checked. And that means usually a legacy media brand or something that you know has a fact check component, editorial component. Yeah. or uh, just a website where you, you're not sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think this year it's so important that uh, we are being vigilant about what we put into our brands. Mm. All right, well, let's move on to... We're just moving on along in a great clip here. Number 15, Mark Dawson, uh, international best-selling author, another author-entrepreneur that I'm a fan of. Uh, prolific guy. has written over 23 books. Um, I think he's got... Well, he's got this fantastic, uh, he's got this fantastic process. So here's, here's Mark on finding time to publish a million words in one
2: year. I'd commute back and forwards three hours a day on the train. And I still, you know, had the kids, obviously, uh, so commitments, family stuff that, that I wanted to do as well. And I managed to write in 2014, or actually published, uh, just short of a million words. So more, more than the Harry Potter series, um, um. In, in 12 months, and the reason I was able to do that was I found the most perfect kind of mobile office, which was the train,
0: mm-hmm. so
2: I'd always get a seat, always get a table, so I'd, I'd get a coffee, open the laptop, put some noise-canceling headphones on, and then that was it. I deliberately didn't tether my phone, so I couldn't get onto the internet too easily, um, and i just write, and you know I could very, very easily do 2,000 words in an hour and a half getting there, and then another 2,000 coming back. Wow.
1: So, so he's writing, he was writing 4,500 words a day, mm. putting you to shame. Mm. I, I am like, yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's shamed, prolific. he shamed me. That was a uh, shaming right there.
1: No, he, he's, he's a uh, truly humble guy, but I think he just found, man, he just found his flow. Noise canceling headphones on the train.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Love it. And there's a rhythm to the train, which is quite nice, you know, like, um, yeah. That that You know, there's a rocking thing that kind of lulls you into a new, a different mind state, um, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, you know, when I was riding One Breath, you know, I'm an avid open water swimmer, as you know. It's like the best way for me to get away from my phone and email is to just get in the ocean and be in the ocean for a couple of hours at a time year round. Yeah. And um, I'd go with friends, uh, my friends John Moore and Jacqueline Evans, to swim around Point Doom. And there'd be days where I knew I had a lot of, you know, it, the words were coming a little bit harder for me in the morning and I just wasn't going to get to my 3,000 words if I went and swam and, you know, a four-hour round trip, drive there, swim, drive back. And so we got to a point where John's like, well, get in the back seat. You don't have to, drive, you don't have to ride in the front seat with me. I'll chauffeur you and just write on the way there and on the way back. And so I would do that. I'd right? end up probably getting 1,000 words in round trip, um, you know, 500 each way doing that and using that time so uh yeah if you if you're you can use dead space now you know you can use that dead time if you're not driving the car and you're not driving the train i think it's great it's a great way to fill in the time
1: yeah there's something really really interesting about that you say the movement thing and i think moving into an age of autonomous vehicles where mm-hmm. more and more of us are going to be, you know, riding in cars that are driverless, especially for those commuters. I think there's going to be more time to be doing stuff and hopefully you're not just, uh, doing emails.
2: Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. It's going to happen. I mean, I think these driverless cars will have all sorts of screens and, and like things that keep, they have the cult of business kind of Nibbling at the edge of no. your perspective. So you'll have to uh, make sure to maintain that discipline. But, um, yeah. but the, you know, there's the, the, the something about, you know, me, there's a di- big difference between me being curled up in the backseat of a Prius <laughs> with <laughs> headphones on, trying yeah. to hack my way through a, a section in a book, and being on a train, which you can stand up and it's rocking and there's air and there's space. I mean, yeah. I think there's something to a train that's kind of special for writing. You have more elbow room. You know, more than you would in a plane unless you're in business class. You know, all those kinds of things, they work really well. I can see how a train would work well. Yeah, yeah. I like that idea. I want to try that. I want to write a whole book on a train. Oh, yeah? Where's the train going to go? <laughs> Just downtown. Does your wife, does your <laughs> wife and family know that? <laughs> <laughs> um, they do now.
1: All right, moving right along uh, past the train to Heather Haverleski, number 16. Uh, Heather is a New York Magazine columnist, essayist. Um, she had one of the be- better books of 2016. So she writes a. Uh, Uh, an advice column called ask Polly. That's got this like, Mm. um, vast following of people that Mm -hmm. read it, but yeah, she stopped by to talk about her process and, uh, I'll just, uh, get into her on finding your best writing time and on deadlines.
4: You, you gotta use those prime hours when your brain is functioning Mm -hmm. really well. And for me, it's, that means, um, 5am to 10am. Wow. Now unfortunately uh my schedule is such that I cannot uh i don't really have those hours free all the time. I try to get up at five and write for two hours before the kids wake up nice nice um but but yeah, my main thing is just utilize the the time the the kind of block of time that you know that your brain works especially i'm forty five years old um, my brain is not as I, I don't know. I kind of feel like when it's working, it's better than it ever has been. But when it's not working, it's like it's pointless <laughs> to even try to do anything. But you know, play Candy Crush or stare at the wall. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it to for me. It's kind of all about getting uh, accessing those hours and then trying to get into the zone quickly. And if there's flow, just go with the flow, no matter what kind of madness you're writing. Nice. Um, you know, I find it that the more deadlines I take on, the better my writing flow is actually. Mm. So Mm -hmm. having a weekly column really helps there. I think that people who have giant projects hanging over their head and they just can't get in the flow and they're blocked. A lot of that is just like, you're not, you don't have a daily writing exercise. You know, it's just like any other kind of exercise. If you're not kind of limber enough, you're not going to be able to, it's going to feel like you don't even know how to do it.
1: Again, this goes back to kind of Dan Pink's thing and and finding your best time for writing obviously um and the deadline piece
2: yeah well I think I think and what I was saying before it's again the pressure and and the scheduling piece we talked about pressure makes a diamond with her it's not just the pressure of the weekly deadline but it's also the pressure of hey I've got kids that need that need attending to yeah and I have two hours so how am I going to use my two hours I mean between five and seven uh, I mean first of all let's give her major props for discipline because that's yeah. a disciplined woman right there For sure. and, and her success is no accident. And secondly, um, I do think once you get conditioned to five to seven as the first section and maybe the kids are off to school and eight to 10, something like that seems like what she's intimating. I could see how that works for you because your, your, your pressure, your deadline also is, isn't just when your editor needs it, but, but it's also what, what my life demands. And so, um, again, it's going to, you're going to rise the occasion more often than not. I wouldn't worry so much about, you know, if you don't have a daily writing exercise, um, kind of thing. I think that if you're ever going to try to take on a big project, um, then yes, eventually you're going to, that will become your daily writing exercise Mm -hmm. and it will happen. And it's not going to feel great at first. She's right. You won't be limber enough. The muscle won't be in condition. But like like I was saying before, a week, two weeks, three weeks in, it will. you'll feel like you have one. I, I really believe that. So yeah. uh, it's just a matter of starting. And then, and then you'll get there. We
1: so often come back to the writer as athlete metaphor. It's pretty funny. I know.
2: I know. Well, you know, we're all frustrated athletes. <laughs>
1: so. um, okay. Kevin Kelly, number 17. Love this guy um the prophet uh co founder of wired magazine um new york times best selling author kevin um i mean he 's considered a futurist so he 's kind of a digital prophet of sorts um but he yeah he kind of looks into the future and makes predictions and his work is fascinating to me of course i love wired magazine mm. he 's also a fantastic. photo fo- a fantastic photojournalist who travels the world um and it takes a lot of photos. So uh, he he was talking about first drafts and formulating
0: ideas. So I, I have had different phases. As I said, I don't think of myself as as a writer. I don't feel like I have to write every day. Just on a normal day, I do you know the email thing. When I'm writing, so so, so I write to 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 figure out what I'm thinking, yeah. and so um. When I have that problem of um, trying to do that, then I will start writing, and I'll kind of like I'll kind of commit to a writing period until I'm done. Hmm. Then I'm writing a lot. You know, I try to do like whatever it is, five hundred words or something just to to get stuff down because for me, the killer thing is that first draft. That's just the hardest thing for me to do. Um When I'm doing a big piece for Wired, which is sort of the do about one a year Mm -hmm. there. It's um, a lot of um, research and a lot of interviews, a lot of reading, calling, trying to talk to people and I'm making notes and I'm, I'm kind of writing up notes, which I will then kind of go through to extract out stuff. So, so that's a several step process where I'm heavily intensively doing the research and that's all kind of coming together, and I'm trying to process it. And I'm writing there mostly um, notes, kind of like things I don't want to forget. But the hard part of trying to have an idea um, generally comes out where, where I'm just, you know, where I try to write down stuff in order to have an idea. Because I don't have an idea and then try to write it, I write it to have an idea. And, um, so that means like writing stuff that's not going to be used, but I'm just, I have to just kind of go through that process. Yeah, yeah. So um, that is, that's painful. I call it painful because <laughs> when I'm writing, it's usually like it doesn't, it isn't very good. It's, it's like, I, I know that I'm not saying anything new. It's, it's painful in the sense that it's, that it, it feels like I'm inadequate. It feels like that I'm not, Doing anything is the usual kinds of fears that artists have, which is like, you know, I, I'm not very good at this. And so um, it it takes um, persevering through that where you begin to, again, for me anyway, pick out the stuff that does work and you kind of isolate it and to try to recombine it. Mm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I love that. I mean, it speaks very much to what I was talking about in the last sec episode about the discomfort thing, feeling uncomfortable Um, which I think is very much a part of the first draft. I feel like when I'm done with the first draft, um, I, the discomfort's gone. Now I know I what I have is the block of clay and I know how to fix it and add to it and, you know, sand it down. It's always the, the, I'm telling you, like as soon as I'm done with the first draft, even towards the end of the first draft, the discomfort starts to go away. Yeah. Um, it's really like the beginning and the middle stages. Uh, once I'm towards the end, I know what I have to say now and how to finish Um, but yeah, so I, I think it speaks to that. I also, it sounds to me like he doesn't do a lot of planning. It sounds to Mm -hmm. me like he likes to free write out the plan and then go back through and create a plan. That's what it sounds like to me. Sure. And that's a very interesting process. And it sounds like a, it sounds like he's more surrendering to the mystery in that way. Um, but I, you know, I don't know that, I don't know that I could do that with the amount of work that is on my plate at any given day. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's lighter, but off, but like right now it's crazy. Like, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I have the time to just write and hope I can come up with something. So, uh, but I, I could see how it would be a fun, a a fun process. And I think surrendering, surrendering to the mystery is, is, uh, it could be a beautiful thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Kevin's a super interesting guy. I mean, he, um, was an editor for the whole earth review, um, before he, you know worked on uh, wired and a bunch of other stuff but um yeah he's had he's had an interesting journey but yeah again he, and he kind of mentions that um uh, imposter syndrome thing mm-hmm. even though he's got had
2: this amazing storied career yeah i mean if he's feeling that way that just shows you, it's, you know, like that's why I like self doubt the imposter syndrome um uh, which is kind of part and parcel uh yeah i mean like it's normal it's yeah. it's, it's like it's like it's nature, you know what it's I mean. Crazy. It's it's our it's our fucking DNA.
1: Well, seventy percent of us have had it at some point or another. Uh, all right, moving on to one of my favorite writers, um, a uh, writer that made a, a very big impression on me in my youth, Jay McNerney, best-selling author of eleven books, including my favorite, *Bright Lights, Big City*. Um, he talked about writing every day and finding inspiration.
5: You have to you you have to be you have to be ready, I think, for inspiration. You know, one of the things that, that Raymond Carver taught me was that, you know, you need to be sitting at your desk virtually every day and you need to be in front of your, well, at that time it was a typewriter, but <laughs> now in front of your computer. And, and, and you have to be trying. And if you aren't there, you aren't trying, uh, you know, the muse is, is, is less likely to visit you if you're just, you know, Taking your, taking your dry cleaning downstairs or uh, uh, trying to flag a taxi. Uh, <laughs> um, it, so it's about showing up every day and it's about st- trying and it's about, um, you know, being ready for the muse. Um, you know, some days I sit down and I can't seem to really get anywhere, but, but I have to keep doing it until something occurs to me, a sentence, a, a voice... Um, you know, a memory that sparks, um, uh, a flight of imagination.
1: I love that one.
2: Yeah, it's beautiful.
1: I like the Raymond Carver name drop also.
2: Nice name drop there. <laughs> Jay. Well, you just name dropped Jay. You name dropped Jay and then he name dropped Raymond Carver. Yeah.
1: You... <laughs> Wait, who's, um, G- who do you think Raymond Carver's name dropping right now? Is he still alive? <laughs>
2: No, he's dead. He's still alive. <laughs> I don't know, man. He's name dropping in, in the ethers. Um, I, um, you know what? With the way my schedule is, I, I don't always get to sit down every day. And um, one thing I'm really looking forward to this year is actually less travel and more time at the desk. Uh-huh. I actually can't wait for that. And uh, And it's quotes like this that make me really excited about that. Because... Uh, it, will be a year dedicated to the craft of writing more than a year, um, on the hunt for stories. And, and I'm, I think I need that and I'm looking forward to that very much. So, uh, you know, I'll let you know if the muse shows up. (laughs) Okay. And if he, and if she doesn't, I'm going to lie and said she did.
1: Uh, moving on to number 19, Greg Isles. He is a prolific number one, New York Times bestselling author. Um, his last one after we chatted also hit number one, um, for quite a few weeks. What was that? Uh, his latest was Natchez Burning. Is oh the right. trilogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His yeah, final, yeah, yeah. the final installment of that trilogy was Mississippi Blood. And I mean, these are three quarter of a million words. Some of them. Or, right. I'm sorry, the, the the trilogy itself is three three quarter of a million words. So seven hundred fifty thousand word trilogy. Um, I mean, the, Natchez. This is,
2: I've been to Natchez. This is a prolific, prolific
6: writer. I like Natchez,
1: yeah. So, uh, Greg Isles stopped by to talk about letting your subconscious do some of the work.
6: The thing I want people to understand is writing is a much more passive thing than people think it is, and that goes back to what I said about the actual writing—words to a page—is like a bag of tools. The real work is done passively in your mind, deep in you. you're doing other things and i try to go as much of the year as i can without writing anything and the story's working itself out i think of a story as sort of Jungian potentials of these different characters protagonists antagonists shapeshifters shadow characters whatever i don't think of them that way but that's what they are Mm -hmm. and it's working itself out and then one day it's like you're a pregnant woman and your water breaks and i haul butt to get to my he's reclining chair with the hospital table over it. And I start, I start working in bouts of 12, 16, 24 hours. And in the last third of the book, I've worked bouts of 36 hours straight.
1: Mm. Kid metaphor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite one so far, because I've been thinking of a particular novel for such a long time. <laughs> I didn't realize it was getting written, but I'm so happy to hear it's getting written. Um uh, no, I mean done. that's what that's one of the reasons i it's already done it's halfway done um one day, my water will break now that's one of the reasons I'm excited to be home more this year is to be able to get get into it and um mm. you know, I hope that's true. Of course, my girlfriend thinks that I just like that one because it it allows me to buggerize guilt free <laughs> yeah, you know, okay, yeah. Um, it's, she's australian she uses bugger eyes means you know screw around not actual buggery
1: oh i see okay
2: yeah um thank you for clarifying that yeah sorry those,
1: those darn aussies <laughs> uh i do find australian english and british britishisms uh it's just endlessly fascinating i, I love mm. talking to both australian and and english um folks because they're just uh their their version of our the the same language we speak is just i don't know just uh almost um like looking through a time capsule sometimes you know you're like is it better
4: is
2: it usually better
1: british english british Britishisms, Usually Um,
2: better but but i think our our slang is a little better
1: i don't know because i tend to think that since most of our Present language was kind of built on that. That they have just, they have far more um, kind of like inside jokes kind of built into their um, slang and their, um, what's the word I'm like, kind of colloquialisms. And and there's something about, you know, certain parts of the United States where people seem to have no sense of humor, but it seems like most of um, Great Britain has a fantastic sense of. Um, how to turn a phrase and how to make fun of you and how to swear. Yeah. Uh, all right. We are at number 20, the f- always, uh, fascinating and fantastic Douglas Copeland. If you're not familiar, internationally bestselling author of 14 novels, including one of my faves generation X, uh, on writing on airplanes.
0: The only other place I can really conceive, there's two other places. Uh, one is on an airplane which is great because there's no Wi-Fi, to be honest. And, mm-hmm. um, and there's a super focus. And also, there's a chemical thing. Like You get like one or two glasses of white wine on a plane with the <laughs> decreased oxygen.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And it's like magic. The words just flow. And then, of course, two hours later, it's over.
1: What do you think? Can
2: you ride on airplanes? Well... No. And that's because, uh, I'm not flying biz class. You know what I mean? I'm a (laughs) cattle class and I'm tall. And so like, if I do, I'm like, it's like a, I have like T-Rex arms
1: on on
2: the computer. You know, the T do you do that? It's like T-Rex arms, which don't really work for me. Um, but if I have to get some writing done, I will, if nobody's next to me, I can do it. Um, I, I have done it. It's not the easiest place for me. Uh, I do a lot of reading on airplanes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, I have to say, this episode, if you—if ha- people out there listening, if you have not listened to the Douglas Copeland ex- episode, it's my favorite show I've heard of yours. I love it oh, so much. Because, um, I just loved him. He just was so accessible and inspiring and kind of he has this feeling of wonder about him in, when you're talking. And yeah. it's, uh, it's just such an exquisite interview and really inspiring for people. Who, uh who are interested in this kind of subject matter um so i I'm a, i was a big fan of that one and you know being a being of the generation x yeah. myself you know i've been looking up to him for a while so
1: for sure i mean, I mean he's kind of an icon and then um obviously <laughs> the euro defining book generation x mm-hmm. um But uh, yeah, there's something really, really interesting about him because he's also a visual artist. And Mm. I think um, similar to kind of Austin Cleon and his process, um, there's something very different about how they use their brains than a lot of other people. Um, So yeah, that's a great interview. And so I will remind uh, listeners now that you can um, link to any of these uh, 21 interviews that I've mentioned on this on these two shows for 21 productivity hacks from 21 prolific writers over on the uh, copyblogger.com I will link to that in the show notes yeah man Uh, all right last but not least and Adam you said this was your favorite Uh, my boss uh, CEO content marketing pioneer Brian Clark uh, CEO of copyblogger on beating procrastination And he said, let me get back to you on this one, (laughs) but don't bump. it.
2: (laughs) yeah, yeah. I like it. And scene. And scene. Um, yeah. So, uh, it's not something you beat. It's something you dance with and occasionally sneak ahead of. Yeah, Yeah. And Tap on the shoulder.
1: Well, I think so, so often, um, he talks about on his show, you know, the importance of taking breaks and I think procrastinating is also part of that incubation phase that, um, so many of these writers have mentioned um greg isles in particular but you know kind of your brain is doing some of that work in the background neuroscience uh confirms this i've talked about it with a neuroscientist at length i will link to the creativity episode with michael gribko the best of the writer's brain creativity i'll also link to that one and uh yeah we did it man we got through uh it only took us about an hour and a half two episodes later um and uh i'm sure that writers now are itching to get back in the saddle uh turn off the internet
2: hey you know this was my this was my production productive procrastination (laughs) for this
1: day yeah thanks for doing this and thanks for taking the time i really appreciate you coming back on um best of luck with i know you've got a ton of um projects in the hopper and i'm hoping that you will come back And join us for a um, writer porn episode, specifically geared towards the imposter syndrome.
2: Yes, I that I know very well. I don't want to give away too much, but I am an impo. No, I uh, (laughs) no. I mean, it's true. For I've been doing this since two thousand, and it wasn't until two thousand thirteen that I thought I I was pretty good at it. So. uh, That's a long time to wonder if you're any good at something It speaks (laughs) to deep psychological issues, but we'll get into that another time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have read much of your work and I'm a big fan. Uh, You are not an imposter, sir. Um, Of course, I will point at your uh, website there, adamskolnick.com. You can catch up with um, the latest that he's up to over there. Um, I'll also point at your Instagram, which I love because it's got so many fantastic travel, um, photos of your adventures out there in the world. I'll point at your, uh, book one breath and, uh, yeah. Is there anything else you want to impart to your fellow scribes before we, uh, call this one finished?
2: Uh, you know what? Just keep doing it, man. Keep doing it. Keep, keep fighting the fight. I, I, um, collaborated with a photographer some time ago named Tom Stoddard, who's a, a pretty big photographer and, and you're kind of, War photographer, politics, everything, daily life. Just a phenomenal British photographer. And um, you know what he'd tell me? He goes, we are lions, mate. We Hmm. are lions. And you just have to remember what we're going for here, what we're attempting to do is extremely difficult. And that's that's why so few people actually try it. And so just remember, we're lions. I
1: love it. I am going to bottle that and uh appreciate your time buddy yeah man you too thanks so much for joining us for this half of a tour of the writer's process if you enjoy the writer files please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review on apple Podcasts to help other writers find us and for more episodes or just to leave a comment or a question you can always drop by writerfiles.fm and chat with me on twitter at calton reed cheers talk to you next week
4: Let's go.